Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, we are back. 15 and 60 mailbag style this time to talk about the Eastern Conference. Thanks to everyone who submitted questions on Twitter. Great to hear uh, from all of you. And we shall begin here with the 10-9 and 9 Atlanta Hawks. By the way, all of these stats are as of earlier on Sunday. We're too many games today, so hopefully that won't be too big of a deal. They are 6-4 and four since the last time we checked in on them, but 7th in the NBA net rating, plus 4.0. And ninth on offense, somehow 8th on defense, projecting for 36 wins. That would be 500. And that would also be tied for sixth in the Eastern Conference to get above that play-in race. Potentially 74% chance of making the playoffs per Raptor. ELO gives them only 52% chance of making the playoffs. So I, I th- there are a couple different questions here that I think are, are interesting and, and worth getting to. Um, can start with this one from, from Hogan Brock. Thoughts on Quinn Capella's effect on Atlanta's defense and uh, Hunter's emergence as secondary creator. I want to talk more on the Capella part of this. Maybe we can get to Hunter but there's something else I want to hit too. And so far, the preliminary indications are very strong. If you want to look at the real basics, cleaning the glasses, garbage time filter, the Hawks have a 103 defensive rating when he's on the floor. There is a lot of opponent shooting luck as there is for the Hawks in basically all facets right now in those minutes. But what is really encouraging to me is that the Hawks aren't fouling as much in those minutes and they're doing a good job on the defensive glass. Not a huge surprise that the Hawks are are rebounding well when you think about that they're actually playing bigger now. And so I think that while it will not stay this rosy, this is sort of parallel some of the other conversations we've had this year already. It won't stay this rosy. I do think that the fundamentals of the Capella at center minutes are doing pretty well. And so I think that that regression to the mean will take this down, but they won't take it out. And if the Hawks are credible on defense with their offense, they're a playoff team. Yeah, absolutely. And when you've got two big guys in there, that's something that they haven't had really a quality center and John Collins. While John Collins is not a great rim protector for a center, he is a pretty decent rim protector for a power forward. And so now you've got uh, both on the glass on the defensive glass and protecting the paint you've got a little bit more there obviously they're a little more challenged to get out to shooters in those alignments but there's a reason that playing two traditional bigs generally is going to make you better defensively can go to this one from from isn't brent i'll i'll start with the second part but i do want to get to the first part so part two was in a ben simmons for trey young trade scenario would either team accept a straight up trade um and my answer is the hawks shouldn't and the reason why is they need somebody to create in the half court and while Ben Simmons would make them an interesting defensive team they have some interesting secondary creators but Trey Young they need somebody who's the straw that stirs the drink and Trey Young is very good at that in a way that Ben Simmons is not and it's very hard to find that player and so some of the stats I, I thought were interesting here. The Hawks have a basically a 101 offensive rating in half-court possessions with Trey on the floor. That might sound not good, but that's actually very good for in the half-court. And they've had a better offensive rating in Trey Young's minutes both this season and last season than, than Philly 
in Simmons's, despite the talent disparity, I would argue, and I think you would agree, that especially when you consider how shorthanded the Hawks were last year, that Trey Young propelling them to that kind of an offense is actually really impressive. Yeah, and Brent talks about how, well, he mentions that the Hawks need to add filler from a salary perspective. I don't know if he means that from a... Uh, asset perspective no i think i think he but, meant like how it would how it would change if they were if they could be traded step which as we know they cannot yeah so i personally think that trey young for most teams is more valuable than ben simmons is right now and i think something that's instructive about that is you think we talked about the defense of the hawks and how clint capella has really helped that a ton well Ben Simmons really can't play with the center who doesn't have any shooting range. Like he's really, and maybe if he can post up, I think that helps a little bit because that gives you somewhere to go on your offense. But Ben Simmons isn't going to be the primary creator. You've already got Ben Simmons who can't shoot the ball. And now you're going to throw in another guy who can't shoot the ball. And you've got someone who has to play up top with the ball and create. And it's going to just be very difficult for your offense, not to mention the fact that Ben Simmons is making the large salary that he's making, and it's kind of to have a guy who's a max player who isn't going to really be giving you much as a creator in the half court. That makes it hard to fill in. You've got to kind of get these Shake Milton types who might be a little bit overstretched on a lot of teams. And if you look, for example, at how Ben Simmons is playing with Dwight Howard and what the numbers are for that this year, those numbers have been really, really ugly for the Sixers offense. And so you throw that in playing with Capella, and I don't really think that that's going to work. Whereas Trey Young, I think he's getting to the point where if you put decent talent around him, and I think I would characterize the Hawks, considering how injured they've been, as having decent talent, not great talent around Trey Young. He's going to be able to push you to having a top half of the league offense. And you, know, you can't necessarily say that about Ben Simmons, and I'm not sure that Ben Simmons can do that for you on the other end because he's really more of a wing. He's not a big. He's not a him alone type of guy, as you would say, on defense. So I think for most teams, Trey Young would have more value. Not, And then you throw in the fact that he has less of an injury history. You throw in the fact that he's younger and that he's far less expensive. And I think Trey Young uh, is significantly better of an asset than Ben Simmons. And since I know it's close to your heart, the first question that Brent asked was, is Trey Young the most fallible player in the league? BS fouls aside, his body type and play type make it easy for physical defenders to knock him off his spot. Yeah, I think that's part of it. The other part of it is just that he's a master. I mean, and he just knows how to set up the pick and roll perfectly. He knows how to get you behind him. He knows how if you're going to try to get over that screen and you give him just a little bump, not only can he draw a foul after that contact occurs, he can even anticipate that contact as the guy is trying to squeeze his way through the screen and started shooting motion and get the three free throws he really is just an absolute master he's I, I think he is if anything even better than James Harden in his prime Harden I think was the first guy to really take foul seeking and raise it to an art form as a perimeter player with just moves that had no purpose other than to draw fouls but Trey Young is built even uh, on that so yeah I, I think you would probably have to say so I mean particularly considering that traditionally the way you draw fouls is either by overpowering people at the basket or putting pressure on the defense having guys be out of position as a help defender he does it without being able to do any of those things I don't want to spend a ton of time on this but a question from Bruce to Brutus has DeAndre Hunter been the best hawk so far and I wanted to use this as a very small and I like DeAndre Hunter I've been impressed with what he's done this year as a very small soapbox to say do not underestimate or undercredit the amount of importance 
being somebody who can create good shots for yourself and others it is like the value of that. And so DeAndre Hunter is having an efficient year, 64% true shooting. He's the, the ridiculous threes that he had early on. That's that's toned down. So this is probably more sustainable. But Trey Young is still generating a lot of that offense for Hunter and others. He's, you know, and and so he I, I'm happy with how this year has gone for him. But it's, it's so important to remember, like the guy who is creating these looks, like especially because you can make up defense in a lot of other ways like that even if Trey Young has like a lower true shooting percentage, like first of all, I mean, Hunter's under 20% usage. And so you think if the positions were split evenly, which they are not, you could do that. But you know, it, it, what he does, he has done a good job of what he does, but what he does is less, imp- it's lower leverage. And so that ma- that makes him not the best. Like it's easier to succeed in the role that he has. Yeah. And I also don't see DeAndre Hunter shooting like in the mid fifties on twos away from the restricted area all season. That might be something that could calm down a little bit um let's uh move on to our next team here yeah let's move on to the boston celtics the celtics are 10 and 8 3 and 5 since the last 1560 including that close loss to the lakers on saturday they are eighth in the league in net rating plus 3.8 eighth in offense 10th in defense one of the few teams actually right now that's top 10 in both 538 projects that they win 44 games which is fourth in the east and they're going to make the playoffs and so i want to start in a question that will bridge a couple of gaps here and nobody asked this because we solicited the questions before shams trainer's report went live on Sunday morning. But my question is, who makes the most sense as a J.J. Redick destination? The Celtics, the Nets, or the Sixers? You can include team fit here or and the ease or not ease of acquisition. I don't think he makes sense for the Nets. They've got plenty of guys who can shoot the ball already. They have Landry Shamit is probably not as good as Redick, although Redick obviously is really struggling right now. So who knows? But guys do, you know, in their mid-30s tend to fall off very quickly at times. But Certainly, Jamit is not as good as Redick, but I think he's damning with faint praise better defensively and still provides that element. And the Nets have enough guys like you don't, they don't need the element of like, hey, let's run plays for JG Redick off the ball. And they also have Joe Harris who can provide a little bit of that. They have Shamit who can provide a little bit of that. And so, and the Nets also, their assets are so precious. I think it would be a poor use to spend them on Redick. The Celtics, they were getting a lot from Peyton Pritchard. I think there's a possibility that Peyton Pritchard might be better than Redick. Not the same type of player. Again, Redick provides this element of running off of screens that could add some more to their offense. But you also run into the problem with Redick on Boston, where how much is he really going to play when they're at full strength? They have those four really good perimeter players. He's not going to close games for them. I think he also, so much of what they're good at is providing defensive versatility yeah Kemba Walker you can have one guy where maybe you have to kick him out on those switches that they're so good at you throw Redick in there and it's really hard to play him with Kemba Walker it'd be hard to play him with Jeff Teague it'd be hard to play him with Peyton Pritchard as well so I I think Boston wants to continue to double down on having more versatility and athleticism so I think that leads Philly and yeah I mean certainly having one more guy in the perimeter would be nice but it I don't think that Redick is going to outplay Seth Curry when you consider both ends of the floor. Yes, Curry, again, is not the kind of guy who's going to run off screens the way Redick is going to. But I, I just, I think New Orleans kind of blew this one, honestly. I mean, we're getting off topic a little bit, but they're like, oh, we want to keep Redick around, Stan Van Gundy's system, et cetera, et cetera. And I think they could have actually gotten something pretty good for him in the offseason. But now with him playing poorly and also their season kind of going off the rails a little bit, uh, I think that their chances of getting much for him are, are going to be pretty low. I will- 
will say um, that Redick has value to some of these teams, even if he overlaps with other credible players. I mean, you could bring up like, yeah, Redick overlaps with Joe Harris. He overlaps with some of these other guys. But like just having four, having 48 good men or close to that of guys that threaten opposing defenses, like I think that can really help. And but it is it is also more of a luxury. And so I my inclination, as you were getting to, is that none of these teams would give up anything of significant value. One other argument in favor of the Celtics is that I don't know how Danny Ainge is thinking about this trade exception. We'll have a couple other questions on that. But it is easier logistically for the Celtics to acquire Redick because they have this gargantuan trade exception from the Gordon Hayward sign-in trade, and they have enough wiggle room under the tax where if the Celtics wanted to acquire Redick, they could do so straight out, and it wouldn't it wouldn't cause any problems there. It would essentially split the trade exception in two. They would still have about twenty five million there. Yeah. I, I think they got to just aim higher than that. I, I, I agree. Just, I I, you know. I agree and. I would like rather than eat into that trade exception to get Reddick at this year's trade deadline. I would rather carry it into next year's off season and see what you could do with it there. Especially because Reddick. So the reason I think you would do that for a smaller salary is if it's somebody who could viably either start or close games for the Celtics and Reddick. In certain circumstances, like yeah, if especially if Kemba's having physical problems, like you can do that. You give Jalen and and Tatum the creation mantle, and then you just have Reddick running around. But somebody's gonna have to get defend point guards they have a couple guys who can do that so it's just the I, I think that the upside of Redick is is not particularly worth the the downside, and that's why I've long preferred Redick on actually a little bit teams with a little bit lower aspirations, just because his flaws aren't as pertinent. You know, it doesn't matter if the seven seed has a guy who's limited defensively because you, you you're probably not going to win the title anyway. Um, we can go to this one from Watch Me One One One. Is Jalen Brown's play real, and does it change his ceiling? And this came up a little bit. We we were talking about the success of of, of Jalen. Jalen Brown so far this year. And yeah, he's not going to hit every pull-up two-point jump shot the way that he did in the early part of the season. But the comfort creating and his and the, sh- the shot making has legitimately improved. And so it does change his ceiling because that makes Jalen Brown a different part of a credible offense. And it, 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 I, so so yeah, I, even if it tones down from here, and I expect that it will, sort of like CJ McCollum when we did had that All-Scar conversation about three weeks ago. But I do think it's real and I do think it changes his yeah, I think so, just because he's creating his own offense now, and he'd shown flashes of that. But at this point, he now he's improved his distribution, he's improved his handle, and he's a, a legitimate creator. He, at a minimum, is a legitimate second option. And yeah, he's not going to continue to shoot it this well from mid-range, but that's a very valuable skill at the end of games where the Celtics at times have struggled to create. And he may actually end up being a better straight-up isolation player than Jason Tatum because of his ability to create a little more separation with with his physical tools in the mid-range, whereas Tatum is just kind of this lithe player who likes to glide to his spots, rise up a little bit. He's not necessarily blowing by guys or faking guys out, whereas Jalen, with his physical tools, he can overwhelm guys with strength as well. So I think he really adds an additional element. And uh, Yanon Barshira asks... Uh, oh, wait, sorry. No, that's uh, we talked about that on the TP already. He had, uh, Carlos asks, uh, what is Jalen and Jason ceiling as a duo for the next five years? And I think of somewhere along the lines of kind of this Clippers team right yeah. now that we're seeing, you know, with, with two wing stars. And you need to add some real pieces around that to make it sing to become a championship contender. And the Clippers are fortunate that they have a lot of that depth. Hopefully they don't collapse in the playoffs again like they did last year. Um, 
And I want to get to actually a different question that, you know, Barshira asked, which was, uh, who do you think should be in the Celtic center rotation? You know, right now they have they have Tice, Robert Williams and Tristan Thompson. And as has been the case for a little while now, obviously he was great when they won the championship in 16. I am lower on Tristan Thompson, I think, than a lot of people. And, and his struggles offensively this year are a little bit ridiculous. Like, yeah, I don't think that Tristan Thompson is going to have 48% true shooting, that he's going to shoot below 50% on twos necessarily for the full season. Season. But he he doesn't have you know he do, doesn't have the same pop that he did when he was younger. He you know has some has some real challenges now. And I think I think Tice has been materially better. And I think that Robert Williams has a has a higher ceiling not only moving forward but also for this season. So he would be the guy on the outs for me. And as was the case in the offseason when they, you know, turned down a certain Indiana Pacer who is leading the league in block rate right now. I think that the Celtics would be better off getting, you know, getting an improvement, but that improvement actually will be hard to find because Daniel Tice has been good. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? Like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice 
heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us all right let's move on to the now 13 and 8 brooklyn nets despite those two ugly losses to cleveland in which they couldn't stop anybody they are eight and three since the last 15 and 60 fifth in the nba in net rating fourth in offense almost 118 21st on defense remember they started off pretty well a bunch of that was shooting luck and oh by the way they traded away many of their best defensive players uh they do project however for second in the eastern conference with 45 wins not exactly amazing but they have greater than 99 percent chance to make the playoffs per raptor that's the more player focused one and raptor is huge on james harden Nate silver has talked about that so obviously raptors be very high on them elo playoff odds give them 90 percent. i'm sure if it weren't for the play and that would probably be higher i mean i think we'll see a lot of these teams just have lower playoff odds just because of the chance that maybe you could get stuck in the seventh or eighth seed and then lose in the play in and not technically make it so let's begin here with uh force master 76 <laughs> thought star wars came out in 1977 uh what do you guys think the Dinwiddie contract Shamit, and a couple of second rounders could get for the nets on the trade market so you're looking at about you could acquire someone in the 17 million or so range with that package let me see if that's actually true that was off the top of my head yeah so Dinwiddie makes 11 and Shamit makes two so yeah so you're probably right in the 18 million or so range with that and i guess it really would come down to danny just whether a team was valuing spencer dinwiddie's bird rights to bring him back next year so you'd want a team that both needs a point guard for next year and wouldn't be able to acquire spencer dinwiddie in free agency would be over the cap and then also would have to trade someone as well it starts to get a little difficult there yeah i actually um i talked with alex schieffer a little bit about who writes for the who writes about the nets for the athletic about dinwiddie theoretically being included in a jj reddick trade and the idea that new orleans is actually one of those teams that could depending on how david griffin sees their point guard situation that actually could benefit from dinwiddie's bird rights but there's another element of this and we don't know how Dinwiddie and his representation are thinking. Is you know what what inclinations are are the the team going to, the general manager whoever going to get from Dinwiddie because his bird rights only matter if Dinwiddie has any interest in resigning with you. And the assumption has to be that Dinwiddie will not give a discount to any acquiring team that he has never played for. Yeah, and there's some thought like if Dinwiddie opted in for next year, then he could extend. But I think he can still, even coming off this ACL issue, it could potentially make more than that 13 million or so that he's scheduled to make next year in the player option. So I, it's it would really be tough. I think it's kind of fraught with peril, and also with as the Nets again. I'm just I don't see how much Redick helps, and we talked about that in the Celtics section 
And so I think I would rather hold on to Dinwiddie, even just to have him in a sign-and-trade scenario, potentially this summer, than to trade him for J.J. Redick. And I mean, that's a good question that we'll have to get more deeply into of just who's going to be out there of that the Nets could pick up who's under contract, you know, whether that's a guy who's a free agent, there's, I mean, the question of just what the Nets even need is an interesting one. Uh, you know, I think actually someone that I might try to target if I were them would be Rashawn Holmes as a guy who can just finish a little bit better on the pick and roll. He's got a little more defensive mobility. He's shown, I mean, obviously the Kings have not been a good rim protecting team this year, but he's shown the ability to switch a little bit. And that to me is probably what they're going to want to do a lot of with Harden and Durant out there and Irving guys. You don't really want to get through screens. Um, but, you know, the Kings wouldn't have interest in Dinwiddie, for example. Uh, so they're, I mean, they, they need another big. They probably need a big that's better and more versatile than Jordan. They need another wing defender, although you say, how much do you really want to pay for that guy when their four perimeter starters are pretty much already set with Joe Harris and the big three? So maybe there's a big out there that a, a team could trade for. But, you know, the likes of a Cody Zeller on the buyout market or uh home something like that i mean I, I think those are those are the targets and i don't think that dinwiddie really is going to be involved in a trade there yeah and that that kind of ties in with a question that we got from from ashley kissick who are likely defensive center targets for the nets on the buyout market um it's going to be a real challenge and something i am working i'm working on a, a piece which may or may not end coming out if i piece it together enough of the challenge with the buyout market this year that the play-in presents because basically now yeah. what what the buy yeah what zeller the, is a perfect example who right. i just brought up there right because when a player gets bought out it's typically because there isn't anything they can do to help their current team and they're also and so that generally means that they're but they're also good enough to play for the new team so that means they're not competing for anything and so like there was this there's some stuff about oh maybe Drummond is going to get bought out not unless Cleveland falls a lot further off the pace than they have so far and Zeller might be in that camp so like maybe you could get somebody like Deadman. I mean he's already on the market right now you brought up Rashawn Holmes his teammate Hassan Whiteside you know I could see the Kings doing him a solid yeah, I, 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 I don't think Whiteside helps this that's team at all not a ton but like that's the kind of guy you're t- maybe javel depending like that would be a more likely potential Cavs buyout or, or he could get traded and bought out by that subsequent team but i don't think you're getting like a, a, a somebody who significantly moves the needle because all these teams think they're going to be viable and they're not going to give somebody away we don't know exactly i, I haven't heard what the buyout deadline is going to be but teams are optimistic i don't think they're going to do that do do a do somebody a solid if they're actually trying to win some you know who i think would be a really nice fit for this Nets team X Nat Thaddeus Young yes and he actually and that, that would be pretty hilarious with a trade of Dinwiddie to the Bulls for Thaddeus Young I mean who knows Dinwiddie probably is not too happy with the Bulls but I mean I think the Bulls you know who knows what Zach Levine's future is we're going to talk about that I'm sure in their section a little bit and we'll see how Kobe White's development goes but to have a White Dinwiddie and you know, Dinwiddie working as more of a distributor he's got more of that in his game than either White or Levine like that that would be interesting I think Thaddeus Young is someone where yeah you could go to that switching group and and sure he doesn't space the floor as well as Jeff Green but he's also a much better defender than Jeff Green particularly as a help defender and Thaddeus Young he can kind of slither along the baseline he can find his spots there I think if he's the only non-shooter on a team he's not going to kill you uh, but that that would be a really interesting one those salaries uh, would fit and Young is also under contract for next year if they would want to keep him um, I think that's all we have time for on the Nets. Let's move on to, oh man, the Charlotte Hornets. 
LaMelo Ball, career high 27 last night, got to the foul line a, a ton, which, which was pretty encouraging. But 9-11 and 11 overall for the Hornets, 4-6 and six since we last checked in on them. Their negative 2.4 net rating is 20th in the NBA. Still chugging along at 15th on defense. Somehow they also got Cody Zeller back, of course, from that broken hand. So he's now their main center. They're still going with P.J. Washington as their backup, so they're not playing Biombo much anymore, which probably helps them a little bit. So 15th on defense, 20th on offense. They project to still be 11th in the conference with 29 wins. 21% chance of the playoffs for Raptor which was lower on them to begin with. And ELO gives them 40% chance. This will be a fun one here from uh, Spread Astaire. Which team has a brighter future, the Cavaliers or the Charlotte Hornets? So if we're focusing on the young players, which I think is a fair way to kind of interpret the question, Hornets, LaMelo, PJ Washington, Miles Bridges, Devontae Graham, the Martin the Martin boys, Jalen McDaniels, and some of the other guys to an extent. And then for the Cavs, we can say... Yeah. Well, well, what's the future? I mean, Hayward's under contract for yeah, four years, right? For, like, forever, yeah. So what I would playing pretty well. So I would say that in terms of overall collection of talent, especially you know, I, I've liked some of the early stuff from Macoro. I think Cleveland's like collection of talent could potentially be better. How, especially now that they have Jared Allen. However, stars make life so much easier for everybody else, and I am significantly more confident that Lamelo Ball will be that guy than anyone else, and that tips the scales for me to charlotte yeah colin sexton is playing at a very very high level yes so far this season and his ability to hit the three-pointer off the dribble has really just opened up his game so much still struggles with the distribution you know if larry nance were a little bit younger i would probably i'd finally come around on him he was someone that i thought was overrated for a while and i think maybe you know and certainly for example in like the year he got traded to cleveland he didn't really help them all that much in their attempt at a finals run but he certainly the ability to hit the three-pointer i think is is really made him a lot better but you know he's 28 already so it's he's he can't really necessarily be a part of this discussion hayward you mentioned him i mean it's probably for a team we're we're talking about either of these teams really going somewhere uh that's a question but i think it's probably pretty close right now maybe labello has the higher upside i still have my doubts about him as a, a score sexton is playing at a very high level but i think really it's close enough to me right now and and that's actually good for to be able to say that about cleveland considering what we thought of them at the start of the year but I would say I'd give it to Charlotte, but probably most of this depends on draft picks that haven't been made yet and draft picks that have not been determined yet in terms of what pick in the draft it actually is. Let's go to this question from CN Manning. Are we sure that the Hayward contract is bad? And so Gordon Hayward so far for the year, PER just under 20, 61% true shooting, 25% usage has been an important part of the Hornets success so far. You can see it basically anytime he comes off the floor, the offense looks so much more discombobulated and he has played much better than I expected this year. Gordon Hayward is currently 30 years old, turns 31 pretty soon, has a significant injury injury history and has paid over $30 million for each of the next three years so year one has been unambiguously better so far than i anticipated but do i expect that he will live up to that contract from here on out including this year no yeah i I, let's give his stats here for this season sure i got it i have it up uh 23 points five rebounds, four assists, rounding, you know, rounding each one of those. 61% true shooting, 25% usage, 17 assist rate, which is a little a, a little bit lower than last year with Boston, but the efficiency is up and the usage is of course up. So, I mean, that is a wonderful player to have in your rotation. He's playing 36 minutes a game for Charlotte. It's started 19, 19 games so far for them. So like, yeah, that he's having a wonderful season. 
Yeah, and at a position where it's difficult to find that level of playmaking as well. So, yeah, I think if he continues to do what he's done so far, and he's played 19 games, he hasn't missed many. We thought maybe with this hand issue, and there's a, and he had a, I think a hip issue as well, that he might miss time, but that hasn't been the case so far. So, you know, I think it wasn't crazy to think that... Now, of course, let's remember they're actually paying him $40 million this year <laughs> with the Batum stretch uh, rather than 30 But we'll see what we're thinking about in a couple of years. There is a concern to me, honestly, that they're too good this year as well. I think that was part of the concern that LaMelo Ball and the guys they had on this roster and a bunch of number nine picks in the future isn't really enough to get you anywhere. And they had one year of not even really that much pain last year because they remember they bumped up in the draft. They actually were, you know, kind of only a couple of games behind making it to the bubble, uh, hilariously enough, last year. And they I still got think the it's unlikely. Pick. Yeah, but but obviously winning too much doesn't mean that Hayward isn't worth it. And also, let's say he could potentially be tradable on that deal as well. Hey, maybe Boston would be interested in him. Uh, <laughs> no, they'd be more interested in Miles Turner. Yeah, maybe that's right. Uh, but let's see here. We can finish up with this last one here on the Hornets. What are your thoughts? Uh, this is from uh, Daniel Ravid. What are your thoughts on the way Borrego is managing ball? Feels like a good thing to instill accountability, but it's feeling a little Byron Scottsy this season with some of the criticism. I don't think that his criticism has gone anywhere near to the level that it did with Byron Scott. I also think that Borrego has a solid record of his players really liking him. And I think that they're starting his shot selection looks a lot better. I think it's just hard to argue with the results so far. And yeah, he's going to be up and down. But when he is down, I think it's fine to give him a learning experience. But they've got some other options that they can go to to close games potentially. So yeah, I think to say, hey, you know, some of these turnovers are, are unacceptable. And to say that in the media, there's this feeling that, oh, you know, millennials or I mean, these Lamella is like well below a millennial, whatever the next thing is. Generation Z, I guess. Gen Z. Yeah. Uh, but like can't handle any kind of public criticism but I mean, this is the first time that LaMelo is really has any kind of accountability at all. So I think given his development that he appears to be ahead of schedule, I, I can't say I have any problems with it. Maybe I've missed some of the spicier quotes, but I, I don't I haven't seen anything that's like really appeared controversial to me. What One other thing I was thinking about this during that Bucks game over the weekend, which they had that big win they had, was LaMelo Ball played really well. He was on the floor in crunch time. And so that's another fundamental difference is like, okay, he's, he's playing well. He, he gets to be out there. And I, I think that that is very encouraging as well and he doesn't you know I don't think he needs that entitlement closing minutes necessarily but if LaMelo earns it he can get it and I think Borrego has handled that well and remember it is even in this abbreviated one it is an extraordinarily long season and hopefully LaMelo has an exceedingly long career so not getting everything at the beginning I think can be a very good thing for him let's move to the Chicago Bulls the Bulls are 7 and 11 3 and 6 since the last 15 and 60 yeah they have had probably would you say the two most brutal losses of the season so far that Warriors won and then the, the what Dame did to him a couple nights ago yeah I mean to the loss on Sunday's Brooklyn loss is probably in that conversation as well but yeah I mean some some really tough ones there the Bulls are 23rd in net rating negative 4.1 15th in offense 27th in defense projected to win 26 games which is 13th in the east and big Raptor ELO difference 8% versus 21% for ELO and we could start with this one from Billy Hoyle would you want Zach Levine on your team where would you rank him kind of top 40 can he drive winning on a different team as a second or third option? Yeah, we haven't seen him with great defensive personnel around him, and the Bulls' defense has really slipped this year in contrast to their offense, which has actually been league average. Both of those are pretty big surprises 
as you talked about. So he's been a big part of that. You know, this has really been the first time that he's been on an efficient offense in his career. The Bulls have had some of the worst offenses in basketball these last couple seasons that he's been their main guy. Yeah, I think that he, uh, on a team like Philly in particular, could really help them. A team that just needs somebody who can jack some shots. His ability to shoot the three off the dribble is really good. He's great in transition. His acceleration getting to the rim is really fantastic. So you just need enough around him defensively, where he still is not exactly a stalwart to help clean up. I don't think, at least that's my hope, is that if he's in a winning situation and he also maybe has a little bit lower of an offensive load, he could be better. But so much of his defensive problems appears to be awareness. And there have been many a coach who's tried to get through to him with that with limited success. So oh, I'm not oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I wanted to say one wild stat on Levine so far this year. He is shooting 42% on catch and shoot threes and 43% on pull-ups. So it hasn't been one side or the other. He's been really incredibly effective. So yeah, I mean, obviously if that could, could, could continue, that would be huge. And um, we- well, well, here, quick, quickly, let's answer the rest of the question. Top 40, I'm not sure I can get there yet with him, I, as I mean, particularly because a lot of what he's doing is driven by what I would consider to be unsustainable shooting. Right. Like yeah, he doesn't, he's... he, well, Zach Levine doesn't pass the him alone test for me. Like, I don't think having him on, having him on your team means that you're going to have, have like definitely have a great offense, though I think he can be a nice contributing piece. Like that's a very high standard and he's also still terrible defensively. So that creates other problems as well. And like, it's, so I, I think that he's not, he's not top 40, but I am far more positive about Levine right now than I was before. Um, and then that can kind of tie in with a question from Richard Lee. Would there be much more? of a market for Zach Levine at the trade deadline. Uh, and so to walk through what Levine's contract situation is fascinating. So 19.5 million this year, 19.5 million next year, then unrestricted in 22, though he is extension eligible, not right now, but he will be after the season. And so a team could be interested for that. And I, I think that Levine is, is positive value on that contract. I also think that most general managers think more highly of Levine than I yeah. do. But I also don't have a kind of a clear-cut fit in my mind in the midseason. I think that it will be easier to move Levine if they want to, and I'm not sure that Karnaschevis wants to, that they will do so Karnasovas. I always get it wrong. Um, that they will do in the offseason if the Bulls really want to go in a different direction. Maybe they want to make it Kobe White's offense, something like that. Yeah, and he'll be eligible for an extension this offseason. He actually yep. was eligible for an extension last offseason, but he could start at $23.4 million and go out four years. So he could get over $100 million in an extension. And that's about where I see his next contract. That's what uh, Shen Mannion uh, asked uh, predicting his next contract. Yeah, I think something in the $100 million guarantee range and his improved playmaking, which uh, motivated Mitch noted, is something that I think is part of that and part of why the Bulls offense has been a little bit better. Uh, Mike on Mike says, I like Lonzo Ball as a fit for the Bulls. Good defender, rebounder, and playmaker. And I think including in Kobe White in a deal could pique the Pell's interest. What are your thoughts? I don't actually consider Lonzo Ball to be a good playmaker. In the I half think court, that's no. where this kind of breaks down. And, and yeah, he's once there's already an opening, yeah, I like him as a connector, as we talk about. But he just can't do anything in the pick and roll. And he can't do anything as a pull-up shooter off the dribble. He can't get to the foul line. He just doesn't draw enough defensive attention to make use of that great passing ability. And I actually, I prefer Kobe White as an asset to Lonzo because you think about that trade, 
and they got to give him a new contract and that they'll be you know kobe white doesn't make that much and i also think that kobe white is he's progressed reasonably well i think there's this expectation when you see some other guys like Trey Young, what he did in his second season, or John Morant, but I think Kobe White is going to develop into a totally solid starting point guard in the league, maybe a little bit more scoring than distribution focused, but that's, you know, he's not a perfect player. No one thought that, but I think he's going to be a solid starting point guard who can do the things that starting point guards need to do, whereas Lonzo Ball, he's has some issues with fit yes he can play off the ball a little bit he's not shooting it well this year and he's really only had one good year of shooting and with the inability to run pick and roll get to the foul line and also not being a great shooter he's not even really like a great defensive stopper one-on-one good team defender so now you're paying him like a starting point guard but you're not getting the things you normally get from a starting point guard so you've got to get that playmaking somewhere else and maybe the thought is that that's Zach Levine but I still think you need another guy who can actually run a pick and roll on your team and the Bulls don't have that without Kobe White so I, I definitely think there are problems the turnovers are really bad for the Bulls their defense that defensive backcourt is not too amazing you know I'm not sure that White and Levine are a great fit they're both kind of score first guys but I don't think Lonzo Ball there is the answer Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from. European wools, linen, cottons, tons of colors, tons of patterns. You can customize things like the lapel, the vents, the pockets, and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style. Level up your game with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com. Use the code CAPSPACE. Use the CAPSPACE. We talk all the time here on the program. You get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's 10% off at Indochino. I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O. Indochino.com. And don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So... No, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Do you want to move on to the Cavs? Let's do it. They are 9 and 10. Still plugging along here. 4 and 5 since the last 15 and 60, despite having had a ton of injury absences. But despite being 9 and 10, their negative 4.5 net rating is 25th in the NBA. Again, fair to note that Garland and Sexton missed a bunch of time during this. So I would say when they're healthy, 500-ish is probably a better representation of where they are as a team. But they are 29th on offense, 9th on defense. They were up really high. What is How is their uh, turnover rate held up here? Because that was the big thing that was driving their success so far as a defense. Cleveland is uh, forcing turnovers? Yes. They're still number one. They're at 17%, which is... So that's gone down by about 1%. They were at like 18% earlier. That's still... 17% is very, very good. That would be in probably the top three, four teams. The 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 Boylan Bulls last year were 18%. 
Yeah, and I think there are a couple of those Memphis teams that were like in the 17% range. But it, it is regressing a little bit, and we'll see how that changes with the addition of Jared Allen, Prince. You know, we haven't really seen exactly what this team looks like. So just to finish out where they're at from a stats standpoint, they project for 28 wins uh, with Raptor. That'd be 12th in the East, but very close to the Hornets. Remember, they were 29th or 29 wins uh, and 11th. 12% chance of making the playoffs per Raptor, 16% per ELO. I would put them maybe a little bit higher than that just because a lot of the fundamentals that they've acquired have been with both Garland and Sexton out. And I think they can be better offensively than they have been so far. Yeah, and, and you can imagine why the models rely on the prior. And remember, Darius Garland was an unbelievably bad player last year and Sexton is much improved as well. Um, I actually want to start with this question just briefly from from, from goal to basket. Uh, related to Drummond and Allen, is it a situation that the Cavs need to answer immediately? Does Allen have the patience to share a spot again? I think in the macro sense, the Cavs don't have to answer it right away. Both of those players are free agents at the end of this year and Allen is restricted. However, it does really benefit the Cavs to answer it quickly, especially if they feel like I do that Jared Allen is their is their future and very honestly a part of the present. I've loved the chemistry at times that I've seen with him and Garland. Like Garland knows how to find Allen and Allen can actually like he can get up for some of those. Like the angles are a little different with him and Drummond now. Um so I don't think they have to do it early, but I do think there are benefits. So I'm interested in where because remember they affirmatively traded for both of them the same administration. So that that, that that's kind of telling and unusual. Yeah, you would imagine that Drummond will probably have moved on by this year, but we'll see what kind of contract he commands and what kind of a contract Jared Allen commands. But certainly to have more control over the contract that Allen gets because he's restricted and he's more on the timeline of some of these young guys. All right, here, this is a good one from uh, Drew Krishnan. Who do you believe is a higher ceiling at this point between Colin Sexton and Darius Garland? ceiling here we are talking about uh clearly Sexton has been the better player so far this year but Garland with a little bit more distribution and neither of them are great defensively though I, I like Sexton's physical tools a little bit better there Garland probably has a little bit better defensive intelligence to help defender but they're both pretty bad defensively and they're also similar in age this is Garland's age 21 season he he actually just turned 21 a couple days ago and Gar- and Sexton just turned 22 a couple days ago so I, I I think that for so I think Sexton has had this wonderful year. I think that his expected value is higher than Garland. I mean, he's been better so far. You could like the, the, some of the ways that Sexton is succeeding as a you know as a scorer seem totally viable. I mean, going back to some elements of the second half of his rookie year, we've seen that. But I think that Garland still has the higher ceiling because. I I see the way that guys who can create for them for other people, you know, the ways that that fits in with within the NBA. And so with Gar- with Sexton, even a modest step back, a lot of those players, this is some of the challenges we were just talking about with Levine, and he's improved as a distributor. But a lot of those, like, it's hard to make a team work with that sort of an identity. And the players have to be able to shoot. Though Sexton, of course, has done that so far this year. He's forty four percent on threes. But I'm I I have a lot more comfort placing somebody like Garland on a successful team than Sexton if we're talking ceilings and ceilings alone. Yeah, I I think I probably would go with Sexton because he just has a little bit more of a track record as a shooter and a score. He's been at basically 40% from three for his career at four per game, and he's had some really explosive scoring games. I also really like the way his free throw attempt drawing is up this year, and actually his much maligned passing is up a little bit as well to where it's not just 
basically as low as you're ever going to get for a 20-point score as a guard. And he's scoring 26 points per 36 minutes on very good efficiency. Do I continue to think that he's going to shoot 44% from three? That's going to come down a little bit. But I really like the way his two-point efficiency has got up. And Garland, I'm just not sure that he is physical enough to really be a, a guy who can be the focus of the opposing defense and withstand that. But I think it's it's a very good question. I'm not saying it's clearly Sexton at this point. I just think because he has a little bit more of a track record. And I also think, too, if you move him to point guard now and really put the ball in his hands and say, all right, you, you we have to get you to start passing. Like guy, A guy like Russell Westbrook, right, really started his career with very little passing ability or DeMar DeRozan, for example, I think you can get guys to the point where they can start to make those reads. They can at least know, okay, spread, pick, and roll. I know I got this guy at the corner. I know I got to read this guy crashing in from the wing, where they can at least get acceptable there. Whereas I think that actually, you know, there's a certain level of innate passing that certain players can never get to, but you can kind of set guys up within the scope of the offense, show them where their reads are, and they can learn that over time. And I think Sexton can get there. We're I think we're already starting to see that to some degree. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. I, and as you said, like I think it's a very close decision. And I was more, far more, I've always been more on the Garland train than Sexton. And that's an accomplishment by Sexton to to get to that level. Let's go to the Detroit Pistons. They are 5-15 and 15, despite that win over the Lakers on, I believe that was Friday. They're three and eight since the last 15 and 60. Pistons are 24th in net rating, negative 4.4 per 100 possessions, 23rd in offense, 22nd in defense, and 538 projects them to finish last in the East. 20 wins. Uh, Raptor actually gives them less than a 1% chance of making the playoffs now, but they are 10 games under 500. So uh, Tuki Dusky asks, could the Pistons actually have been a fun up-and-coming team if they'd kept Christian Wood instead of signing Plumlee? I mean, I wouldn't go quite that far. Obviously, what Jeremy Grant has done has been fantastic. We'll talk more about that in a second. But looking at the pieces that they have, I don't think that Killian Hayes would have is a guy who had shown enough to be part of contributing to that fun up-and-coming team aspect. So you have Wood and Jeremy Grant. Both of those guys are a little bit older, although certainly both of them players who didn't have a chance to blossom, which is always fun. I really like seeing guys being given a larger role and actually succeeding in it but i mean i guess they would have isaiah stewart who i i i totally agree isaiah stewart is really fun to watch i love watching that guy I mean, he's he's kind of like the new tristan thompson in the way he just goes in there and knocks heads and is like absolutely relentless going after the ball as a rebounder i don't know if he has quite that level of mobility what we'll to see there and sadiq bay is okay but i don't think that wood would have changed their destiny all that much but i i to to they would have been a lot more fun to watch yes yes although i will say this mason plumley to me is playing the best basketball of his career so far this year he's despite going from a good team to a bad team he's really reduced his usage which i think is important they're not doing the post-up stuff nearly as much they're not running as much through him i think he's been a little bit better defensively although he continues to just basically anytime he gets inserted as a defensive replacement late in the game it's an automatic bucket (laughs) just ask anthony davis about that or kyle kuzma or many many others but uh so he's played okay i think he's earned his contract certainly but yes i would much prefer to watch christian wood on this team is a long-winded answer but let's talk about the the aforementioned jeremy grant hot tape or sorry hot take gabe 407 asked this one here danny 
Is Jeremy Grant improved or is he just at the buffet getting all he can eat because who else is doing anything of consequence? And for those who have an athletic subscription, if you haven't read Seth Partnow's piece on shot quality, it's the start of a series that he does that Jeremy Grant is not mentioned, I believe, at all in the entire piece. But there's the section talking about Pascal Siakam and the idea that when you increase your usage, you are taking more difficult shots because there just aren't that many easy shots. And so Jeremy Grant, you think about the shift from last year to this year, not that he was playing with Jokic every second because he really, really wasn't. But Jeremy Grant last year, 59% true shooting on 18% usage. That 18% is up to 26%, and it's still still 59% true shooting. And so what that means is Jeremy Grant is taking more self-created shots, lots of, way, lots of ways to quantify that, and he is taking more difficult shots and is still making them at a, at a very efficient rate. So he is significantly improved. And as I said, he's doing a lot more for himself, which is so much harder. Yeah, and his efficiency, I think, is dropping off a little bit. Sure. He's only, he's under 50% on twos, which is not amazing for him. And 40% on threes, taking now 6.4 for 36 minutes. I, I don't believe that he's going to be able to continue to do even taking some threes off the dribble. Although, I mean, his free throw shooting is like ridiculous right now. It's 87%, which yeah, and, you, you never would have thought. And he's taking more per 36, not as huge surprise than, than Grant ever has in his career because he has the ball. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so you mentioned that there's so much more self-created. No, I think this is, I mean, it's tough to say that all of this improvement happened in the two months between the Nuggets losing in the bubble and this season starting with the Pistons basically is what it was. But I think he did have the ability to do more. I think the most impressive thing for me is he's only turning it over on 7.2% of his possessions. Usually when you see guys take on a way bigger role, they struggle to create with that level of defensive attention. And instead, Jeremy Grant has part of that's because he doesn't really pass that much for a big score, but he never turns it over. He's one of the lowest turnover rates for a big scoring guy in the NBA. That's really impressive, and so I think that's been a big key to his success. So, no, certainly... I give him all the credit in the world. I give Troy Weaver all the credit so far to believe that this is possible. And yes, I don't think that he's going to continue to play this well offensively, but there definitely was something there that nobody else saw. And great job by Troy Weaver and great job by Jeremy Grant as well to go to a team that was going to feature him more. We derided that idea that this was going to turn out that well. He had a couple of games early where he was breaking long twos and where we thought it was going to just be like that, but no, it hasn't been. And I brought up the idea of like, there aren't more easy shots. I think this is one healthy way to think about it. Last year, 11% of Jeremy Grant's field goal attempts were dunks. He had 63 on the season. That 11% is down to five and a half percent. So it's basically been, it's been cut in half this year. And that's not a surprise. Like there aren't that many more dunks to have. Like he could, he couldn't really find that many more. And so that means you have to do more. And that's, I think part of why his field goal percentage on the basket has dropped and numerous other things. But yeah, he, he has been much improved for me this year. Yeah, one other thing that I think is really interesting, Danny, if you had to guess on Synergy, what do you think is his most common play type right now? Hmm, hmm. I, I, I kind of want to say ISO, but I don't think he's done that quite enough. That's, that's unusual to have it be that high. So still, 30% of the time actually has been spot-ups, mm-hmm. and he has been awesome in those situations. And it's not only that he's shooting the ball well out of those situations. For example, he is... 30 out of 73 with a 62% e-field e goal percentage on catch-and-shoot jumpers on spot-up situations. But he also has been ridiculous on jumpers off the dribble in spot-up situations. That's going to go down a little bit. 
And then he also has done a great job of attacking off of closeouts. And so it hasn't necessarily been as much of the, you know, self-created in the sense that he, he'll take a dribble or two, but it still seems like a lot of it is attacking the opening. It's not just, all right, let's line him up on pick and roll. That's only still 12% of the time. And he's actually been terrible yeah. out of pick like, and roll. He's 13 like out of 42. Like, it's a different role than you brought up DeRozan before because of the low turnovers. Like, it's a different role than what DeMar DeRozan is doing. Yeah. Now, as an isolationist, he's been fantastic. That's the yes. other thing that, that's really been interesting, uh, where he's 22 out of 37 on ISOs. And one thing that he's been really good at is just catching the ball in the mid post and then just going straight up for the jumper immediately and just shooting over the guy. And then when they make him put the ball on the floor, it looks really good as well. So he's been able to make that mid-ranger out of the mid post, force the defense to play him honestly, and then he can blow by him. So it looks pretty good with those isos, but they're not, you know, it's only 45 possessions on the year. It's like two a game. It's not a ton here. And he's been effective in transition as well. It's been a nice jack-of-all-trades type of scoring season for him where there's been a little more pick and roll. There's been a little more iso, but just more overall of everything. And that's why he's been able to succeed. You want to move on here? Yeah, let's go to the Pacers. Pacers are 11 and 8, 5 and 5 since the last 1560. Still a strong net rating, plus 2.4 is 11th overall, 11th in offense, 13th in defense. We'll talk about some of the splits there. They're interesting. Uh, 538 projects they'll win 30 games, which would be fifth in the East, and about an 82% chance they're going to make the playoffs in both models. And I want to start with this one from insider underscore Palm. Thoughts on the Oladipo Levert deal? Uh, Pacers trading away Oladipo for Levert was a head scratcher to Palm Insider. I disagree because I mean there's there's obviously the complication and thank goodness it looks like Levert's going to make a full recovery from the uh from the renal cell carcinoma that they discovered in the physical and thank goodness they found that but Victor Oladipo like he he was about to leave like we we know that moving forward Karis Levert even if yeah I mean just look at some of the drama and some of the quotes and you know even Jay Michael had a thread on Twitter about how Oladipo's representation was texting him about his story that saying that he wanted to he was talking to players on other teams about playing there during the season last year like it that just wasn't going to happen Brogdon took over Oladipo's leadership role Oladipo is shooting too much there just wasn't a future for Oladipo there well and, and the questioner brought up Oladipo scoring 20 points a game but he wasn't doing it efficiently like he Oladipo was shooting 42 percent from the field and below 50 percent on twos and that's despite making a bunch of his three-pointers in a way that I think was probably unsustainable and he was being I thought he was being selfish out there and so the idea of getting something for him was reasonable and it doesn't seem like the trade market is that robust we'll see if Houston can find anything for Oladipo maybe they'll keep him they've had some had some really fun games recently but Levert I I'm not the biggest Levert fan in the world but I think that having a capable player at a reasonable price when it doesn't push you over the tax or do anything ridiculous like there's a clear clear argument there for the Pacers and there are a couple different kind of niches that could end up working for Levert depending on how Nate Bjorkren wants to structure this rotation you know this is I'm not sure if Levert's going to fit great in the starting or closing lineups, but there's a lot in the middle, and you can play him when those things are working out. He doesn't close the door on anything. Yeah, and we talked about this when we reviewed the Harden trade, that I think Levert adds a skill set that this team needed, which is just the ability to get his own shot in isolation. That's not really Malcolm Brogdon's strength. T.J. Warren, he kind of likes to run off a wide pin downs a little bit more, catch the ball, go straight up with it. You put a really good defender on him, I think you can he can be shut down. Whereas you put Karis Levert 
in a pick and roll with Demontis Sabonis with the floor space. I think that could be a very potent combination. And yeah, Karis LeVert hasn't shown the ability to be efficient yet. He's a little bit older. He's got an injury history. Those are all concerns. But just at the end of games, as just someone, or, or the end of the shot clock, to give them a guy who can get a decent shot, even if it's not going to go in all the time, I think that gives them an element that they didn't have. And hopefully they just won't overstretch him in terms of the usage because they do have other capable scores. And one thing that Palm Insider also talked about was why trade for Levert when TJ Warren is expected to return this season? Oh, they desperately need both of those guys. And that gets to this question by 95-40 Steph. The Pacers struggled mightily on defense without Miles Turner. What can they do in the Sabonis-only lineups to improve the defense? And other than maybe playing Jakar Sampson, who kind of hurts your offense there, they just don't really have the personnel to put around DeMontis Sabonis. This is part of the reason. Another guy asked whether Sabonis would be the worst all-star again next year. I think he was being sarcastic. But I, again, I, this is when you see the performance that they've had without Miles Turner and without a guy like Thaddeus Young, who they had a couple of years ago, go around Sabonis and you see why it can get to be a little bit difficult for him with his fit the fact that he's shooting three-pointers this year a little bit more helps that but I'll ask you this question Danny I asked this on Twitter I'll tell what the poll results were in a second who is the best player on the Indiana Pacers who is available right now and the, the three that I put out were Brogdon Miles Turner and Sabonis I would have Brogdon one. I think it's a close call between those three. This is something that we've we've discussed a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And I think Brogdon has been has been underappreciated. And I think the distinction I mean the Pacers have to have a based on how most people do this, they have to have at least one all-star. I would say that Brogdon is the most deserving of those. But I I'm a Miles Turner partisan as well. And I, that isn't to say like Sabotis is crap or anything silly like that. I don't believe that. Yeah. But Turner's defensive I mean, he might be defensive player of the year so far. We'll do awards in a little bit. But that is, you know, and that's that's hard to replace. And so it, it's an interesting question. But I actually want to answer the one uh, a, a little bit more on the Sabonis. Well, well, uh, well here, let, let me say sure. what, the, what the poll results were. I think it was like 57% Sabonis. And then the remainder was like two-thirds, one-third, Brogdon and Turner. Um, so I, I still might believe that the way Miles Turner is playing, that he is the most irreplaceable player on the Pacers right now. Part of that, again, is just due to not having other great rim protectors available. But, uh, you know, it, it's just, I've made this point many times when people get mad at me saying Sabonis isn't that good. It's like, well, I, I'm just... I believe more of the other players on the Pacers than you do, right? Like you could kind of get into this fan defense mode, but I guess I just think that Miles Turner and Malcolm Brockton are better than you do, right? If you're a, if you're a Pacers fan and you think Sabonis is this awesome all-star type of guy, um, but anyway, you, you're going to get to one other question here. Yeah, well, so you brought this up, but I want to I want to bring talk about it a little bit more. The Sabonis non-Turner minutes. Part of the reason they really struggle defensively is that they don't have good defenders out there in the lineup. I mean, McDermott is most often playing the four, and Doug McDermott does really you know he doesn't do the help things that you would want for somebody next to Sabonis and and the other challenge for me in the in this like if you're Kevin Pritchard thinking about the concept of your team is I think they're going, and some of it is just who they have available, but I think they're going too hard for offense in those minutes. Sabonis, you know, wonderful passer, does all these things well. I don't think that you need to have all, you know, like so heavily offense in those minutes. You need spacing and some like capable cutters and all that. But imagine how much that lineup would be helped. You brought him up before with somebody like Thaddeus Young, somebody who's a limited offensive player who, yeah, it'll crimp their offense, it'll crimp their offensive style a little bit, but who can be a help defender, who can help make life easier for Sabonis. And 
you know, the, that sort of a dynamic, has. I think it's helped Jokic at times, and I think that it would help Sabonis as well. Let's turn to the Miami Heat. 7-12, and 12, an ugly 3-8 and eight since we last checked in on them, obviously have been much more than decimated by injuries and coronavirus protocols. Is it, it de- decimated Tyler is Hero you lose 10% or is decimated you have 10% left? Because one exacerbated because he had to play too much because they had so many guys in their coronavirus protocols and Jimmy Butler basically hasn't played this season. Goran Dragic is now out with a groin issue and so all that is adding up to a negative 5.5 net rating, 27th in the NBA, 26th on offense, 19th on defense, Still projecting for the eighth seed, 34 wins. Raptor playoff odds give them 65%. That Those, of course, again, are more focused on who are the players on this team? How do we expect them to play? The ELO playoff odds, which are more biased towards what the performance of the team has been so far this season, give them only a 43% chance of making the playoffs. And so uh, our, our good friend uh, BPM Twitter asks, are the Miami Heat already doomed to the play-in or worse, or can they still recover into a more comfortable position? They are not doomed to that, and I think a good way of thinking about the Eastern Conference is that there are currently five teams that I think of as definitely good that have an over 500 record. The Sixers, the Bucks, the Nets, the Celtics, and the Pacers. Considering the Heat are already five games under, they can pass those teams. I mean, we're there's still more than 50 games left in the season. That's a lot of time, and no team has been hit no good team has been hit as hard by all of the everything that has happened as Miami so far. Then you have the Hawks are doing better. The Raps are about the same overall record. And so in order to not play in the play-in, Miami basically has to beat all of those teams and then, you know, the Magic and the Knicks and everybody else. And I absolutely think they would do that and I would actually favor them. Now that is far from a guarantee when you consider the variance of having like eight teams in that mix and everything else. But Miami is better. They've, they, we have a belief that they're, the sample is non-representative at damn well better be for Miami so far. So yeah, getting above, you know, getting above the six likely, you know, like the, the best, the best way for Miami to do well, that would well, be. Well, to the, to the six, not, not above Well, no, I'm six. saying to get above the six, theoretically, okay. would be one of those, one of those other teams having a rash of injuries, kind of like Miami just dealt with. Um, But I, I would have them as the favorite to get to the six right now. And so, you know, I, I don't think fans need to be freaked out knowing what we know right now. Now it might end up that the six seed is a really bad place to be. You might actually rather be the seven. Um, also, uh, this is something that I think is bears repeating because because the structure is different than last year. Here's how the play-in works. The seven and eight seeds play each other. Winner is in, loser then has to play again against the winner of the 9-10. So if you're the seven or eight, you have to lose twice to not make the playoffs. And that's a pretty strong advantage for those teams. And I would favor, you know, knowing what we know right now, I would favor Miami if they went into that against probably anybody. Yeah, that's true, right? It's going to be the Hawks, the Cavs, the Hornets, the Knicks. I guess the Raptors are the other team that's kind of in this situation. Sure. With the Heat, although they've started to play better, obviously, as as we'll talk about later. It's just it's it's not the end of the world right now. The the Heat are only three games out of the six seed. That's the Atlanta Hawks. Unlike last year, the two seed in the East right now is has a thirteen and nine record. So nobody, last year, remember, the top six teams all went and hit and were 45 wins or over types of teams by the end of that. It, maybe some of these teams are, are going to start to come around, but you know, a team like the Celtics, for example, they've got a ton of injury issues. The Pacers are missing TJ Warren and Karis LeVert, and the Bucks are only 11-8. and eight. Brooklyn is still trying to find themselves. 
there isn't really I, I think you're not too scared a that these teams are going to completely run away from you and b there i don't think there's anyone that scares them too much in the seven eight and hey i don't know even that there's anybody that scares them that in could the be one, the two. one or the two seed yeah right if if they get there and especially if there's no home court advantage that's significant as of that time i sure as hell hope there is but we'll see so the problem is they just have to get healthy right Goran Dragic they were bad Eric Spolster was like we got to start winning some games Hero is out we got to get Dragic in the starting lineup and then he hurts his groin who knows I mean because it's the Miami Heat he could be back tomorrow he could be out for a month they have, you have no idea with these type of injuries with them Avery Bradley is out again Jimmy Butler hasn't played well when he's been available and largely hasn't and he's coming back from COVID and we'll see some guys are able to just come back just like that other guys have symptoms and are struggling you know J- Draymond Green was talking the other day about how he's still it feels like he's two or three weeks away from being in good condition after having COVID and there's other guys Russell Westbrook really seemed to struggle after getting it as well so it's just it's too hard to predict but the nature of this season it's a good season to be 7-12 and 12 in, we'll put it that way, and they haven't had their whole group together, and I'm not willing to judge them until they have. And, and that ties in with a question from Adrian W743. Beyond getting back the main guys, what do you see the Heat needing to do in terms of transactions to help shore up the roster? I don't think they need to do anything. I think that I'm a I'm a believer in what Miami has has accomplished so far. They've been exceedingly shorthanded, and this isn't a circumstance where you have your guys and your guys just suck. Like you could bring up, you know, like the, I guess if people thought Detroit was going to be good, that that could be a concern for them. But and Jeremy Grant's been great, obviously, as we talked about. But so for Miami, I think getting those getting those players healthy and it's it's not just like COVID. I mean, Hero is dealing with an injury and all these other stuff. So I don't, I don't identify it now. If we're talking about like them as a playoff team, it would be great to have you know a, a Jay Crowder equivalent again because you think about the the critical mass they had of capable defenders, especially the guys who could shoot like Jay Crowder. That was really nice. And Miami doesn't have quite that same group now. I don't love Harkless in that same role quite the same, but he's also not as strong, which I think is a consideration. But that like that is a hard. That's a hard fix in season there just aren't that many players available Miami is not the most asset rich and they're not going to give up their assets so I think that you hope everybody gets right and that's probably enough we also got a couple of questions on what Bam Adebayo's season or ceiling is and that's going to deserve a fuller breakdown at a future time but he certainly is showing more and He's turning the ball over a little bit too much, but he's got 25 usage and 66% true shooting right now, and he's still giving out a ton of assists. Some of the mid-range clinics that he's been putting on lately, yeah. and he's and he's also shooting like 86% for the free throw line all of a sudden. It, it's pretty remarkable what he's been able to do with this shot, and so... I think that one nice thing about these struggles is letting him work as an isolationist a little bit more. And I thought that they didn't do enough of that in the playoffs last year, but that when they did, it looked awesome. Like, for example, that game six against the Celtics. Ooh, so I think that's that's one thing where, you know, if we're talking about Bam Adebayo and I think this offensive load has maybe hurt his defense a little bit, and they've had so many injuries and so many young guys, it's hard to really judge their defense or their offense at this point, but him being able to be this much better as a primary scorer that can only be good for the future and 
they just got to get Jimmy Butler back and Goran Dragic back and playing well and Hero as well. I mean, there's just and they got to still solve this stretch four problem on the trade bargain. I think that's the other thing that'll be a, a huge aspect of this is whether they can find someone to man that position as far as how dangerous they're going to be. Let's jump to the Milwaukee Bucks. They are 11 and 8 on the season, 5 and 4 since the last 15-60, but they're still a robust fourth in net rating plus 6.3. First in offense, 17th in defense. We will talk about that. Bucks projected to finish tied for second in the West with 45 wins, and they're of course making the playoffs. And I want to start with this question from Zach Vinson. Is the Bucks' high offensive rating a sign of new players and systems working in a sustainable way, or are they ripe for regression? Certainly part of it is just that they have better shooters on the team this year, and that they're three-point shooting has been driving a ton of this right now they are shooting it's gone down a little bit but they are still at 39 percent from three which is fourth in the nba and they generally have just been a big volume team in the past but pretty much right around league average and we talked about this on the last 15 and 60 some of these three-point percentages might go down a, a little bit and they have a little bit pat Connaughton is not shooting over 50 percent anymore but they, they have more guys who are shooting in that 40% range. That's been a big part of it, I think. And they've also done it with Giannis's individual numbers down. And so that's something that uh, Eric Name has, has written well about. For The Athletic, I encourage you guys to read that. I think we had that one in our daily dunks for our uh, Dunked on Prime Total Access subscribers. You can find it there. It just it doesn't feel that different to me against the really good teams yet, it, though. It, it doesn't. And I mean, so a part of why the Bucks' offense has been more effect- effective than last year is they have better offensive personnel, especially on the bench. So last year, when Giannis and Lopez were off the floor, they had about a 110 offensive rating. That's up to a 112. Not a surprise. They have better offensive players that are out there. The defense has dropped 10 points per 100 possessions, so now those groups have a negative 7.5 net rating overall. But the offense has been better, so that's helped contribute. And a a really fascinating dynamic, I I need to study this more, like I'm I'm acknowledging this is something I'm going to need to watch more film on and everything else, is that the Bucs have this dramatic improvement in offensive rebound percentage. So going from under 23 percent part of that i think is the is this having a guy in the dunker spot yes yeah i I think that it is and and so they're not getting to the line nearly as much but they are grabbing a ton more offensive rebounds and so overall i think that is that has helped and you brought up the the three-point shooting their effective field goal percentage they were number one last year but they're actually they're actually higher this year though they are lower in league ranks so far so that'll be something to keep an eye on um I'll do this question briefly from Bryce Hendricks. It's still early, but do you think the Bucs are better equipped for the playoffs than last year? Do you think the loss of depth could be an issue? I think the loss of depth will be an issue. The lack of options, like the the players that I trust for them in the playoffs has gone down significantly. And that is a huge problem when you think about the way that opponents can and do take away what you do best and try to make you into a counterattacker and everything else. And the Bucks don't have a ton of a ton of looks. And they, you know, the, the, okay, like they could do Giannis at center with Marvin Williams, and they could throw all these other things out there. They, you know, they've had some guys that have exceeded expectations, but the I, I'm I'm much more concerned. Yeah, so uh, on this dunker spot thing, uh, Jeffrey Lynn asked about that, what I think about them incorporating the dunker spot. And I've been critical of them just always seeming to have like some guard down there who would get in Giannis's way, like George Hill or DiVincenzo, both, uh, both love to do that in the playoffs. And I thought that that made things more difficult for Giannis, that Giannis hasn't been as effective. And what some of what people are saying is, well, having a guy in the dunker spot helps the overall offense. 
even if it it makes things a little bit more difficult for Giannis and you know it's just this is just such a weird year and yes the results have been very good how much of that is just guys making the open three-pointers that they've got I, I think I would put more of that than that this is the dunker spot now part of the idea of the dunker spot having a guy there is whoever is there does need to be guarded and yes that guy can help at the rim more but he's also further away from helping on the perimeter if you have four guys on the perimeter you can go from one perimeter guy to another a little bit more easily but so i, I still the jury's still out on that to me because again this is such a weird year and it's also a very small yeah. sample right now yeah within that but, weird year but i mean i i'm more just concerned that they've lost what made the bucks great which was their defense that was the thing that made them a championship contender i don't think despite the early returns i don't see this as an offense that is just like impossible to stop now there's a dearth of teams that are really great defensively in the eastern conference i still think that the celtics for example have a massive problem in guarding Giannis. so i do like that matchup reasonably well for the bucks still although if when they don't have Kyrie Irving trying to guard him it might look a little bit different in a playoff series <laughs> uh you know and it may not even rear its head and it could just end up being a shootout with the Nets and the Nets don't really have anyone to guard Giannis either and so you've got Giannis and some guys to knock down shots and maybe they can get just enough defense and get out of the east I mean that's that's another just crazy discussion that we have to have at some point of like who we would favor in the east oh, no. right now that, that'll be a good that'll be a good for a Watfo actually yeah uh I might even need but, to be a whole podcast in of its own at some point. <laughs> um, so, I mean, like, we're kind of hitting on some of these themes that Bryce Hendricks brought up as well, uh, where, you know, are they better equipped for the playoffs than last year? I, I guess they are. I don't, think, I don't they, think they are. I think they are just because they don't have any offensive zeros anymore. Like, just to, like, to not have just that Bledsoe albatross, to have a guy who has historically raised his game in the playoffs Small sample size, admittedly, in Holiday. Uh, their, uh, bench you know, Holiday scares, their bench scares the ever-loving crap out of me. Yeah, it does. Although, I mean, their defense on the bench hasn't been noticeably worse by the numbers. Obviously, they're going against the bench. And, and they could also shore things up a little bit. You know, I think one of the nice things about what they have, too, is if they could just find a way to one more guy who can be kind of that versatile forward defender type where they don't necessarily have to play Brooke Lopez I don't know how they're going to do that because they are uh, somewhat bereft, as they say, of assets. Maybe DiVincenzo well, and, gets into that. And hard cap space. Like, it's, yeah. like, even a buyout guy could be difficult for them depending on what happens. All right, let's get to the Knicks here. <laughs> also 9-11. and 4-7 and seven since the last 15-60. and 60. Negative 1.1 net rating is 17th. 28th on offense. They actually moved up a spot. 4th on defense. They actually project to get the 10th seed now via 538's Raptor with 30 wins. But as we're seeing that 28, 29, 30, a lot of these teams projecting right in that range. 28% chance of the playoffs for Raptor. Big difference here. ELO playoff odds have them at 54%. Again, those the latter is based more on how have you played so far. Raptor playoff odds is what do we think of the players that are on this team. Uh, is Julius Randle an all-star? I'm too early. I would be, I can't really go through the entire analysis of that. I think he could figure potentially. And then uh, another thing he asked though is, were you wrong about Oh, I want to do, I want to do this in the Daniel Costner way. When will you apologize to RJ Barrett? First of all, what? Like, like if you, if you evaluate a player, you think they're not going to be very good and they end up being good. That merits an apology. Like anyway, I, I will, I will, I will refrain from that. Here is, yeah. here, here is how RJ Barrett has done this year. Yes, he is averaging 
eight, now 18 points a game, and this was before the uh, before the the loss they had to the Clippers. RJ scored 23 points on nine of 14 from the field. RJ Bird is averaging those 17 points. 50% true shooting, 23.5 usage, 15% assist assist rate. He is shooting 29% on about four threes. 29% from three, by the way. A, a, a few people, th- this was just a hilarious. This is going to be a, a small rant here. I tweeted at like game number four or something. Like RJ hit like his first three threes of the season and then he missed like, you know, his next like 18 or something like that. And I tweeted about it. And like people were treating me like, oh, do you regret this tweet? I'm like, I just said what its stats were over a four game period. No, I don't regret the tweet. There's nothing to regret. It's a tweet about one fact about him. And hey, if you're going to, you know, I know he's hit a few lately, but he's still at 29% for three on the season. Like those early, just because it's been what you hope it would be for the last two weeks doesn't mean the first two weeks don't count. Uh, maybe these are all Drew Hanlon uh, burner accounts that are tweeting and, at me. But Yeah, I mean, so, so then let's go through some of the other synergy stuff. RJ Barrett, 35th percentile as a pick and roll scorer, 24th percentile if you do scoring and passing, uh, 0.8 points per possession, uh, per pick and roll possession. About 0.8 per possession on spot ups. That's even worse because spot ups are a more efficient category. He's 18th percentile there. And if you want to use RPM, Barrett is negative offensively. His defense and his defensive rebounding, things we actually liked at the time. You and I both said basically like there are things we don't like about Barrett, but then the other stuff is quite positive. It's just that it's not enough to make the theory of the case. Negative in offensive RPM, he's 74th out of 98 shooting guards in offensive RPM. Yeah, and by the way, we as we mentioned, the Knicks are 28th in offense. And now, uh, as we've repeatedly said, by the way, that they have not put the personnel around him yes. for him to succeed as a, a creator. And he absolutely looks better. The fact that he can make a free throw now, that is encouraging uh, as well. That usually presages improvement from a shooting perspective. But do I see an all-star game in Archie Barrett's future based on how he's playing now? No, and certainly his full season numbers would reflect that. And we've seen some players who have a really bad start to the season, and then they get a lot better. You know, your Colin Sexton rookie year, and that presages that they're going to be a lot better, and maybe that'll be the case with Barrett. I'm not foreclosing on that. He's a talented player, but getting way ahead of ourselves here i mean this is another one of these things where these guys are winning with defense right now and you always want to just oh well who are the guys who are scoring a lot of points for this team that's been better than expected let's give them the credit no how about you give the credit to tom thibodeau and this defense which has been pretty good and that ties in with a question from alejandro reyes is the knicks early defensive sex still mostly based on opponent shooting luck or are the knicks a legitimately good defensive team i talked about this a lot actually with jared dubin on real jam radio which came out i think that was thursday or friday and there is a lot of shooting luck involved here the Knicks give up a ton of threes and opponents are missing them though that changed in the Clippers game where the Clippers went 17 of 38 so and they have posted a 140 offensive rating so you know started to chip away at it a little bit but the really good news for the Knicks is okay the top five in defense that they are right now that is appears to be unsustainable but some of the fundamental stuff here I think is really good I think that they're they have capable rim rim protectors they have you know like you can expect that that will continue they're not fouling as much they're doing a decent job on defense class I actually think the Knicks can do better there yeah and then uh, c-step 2007 says how are you feeling about the Porzingis trade given that Dallas is 13th in the West could possibly give up an unprotected lottery pick I don't think Dallas is gonna stick there I mean they're another team that's been totally ravaged by coronavirus as Miami was and the Porzingis trade I actually was on record as liking it for the Knicks at the time part of that was based on them doing something in 2019 free agency they did not although they did get julius randall which 
I guess maybe you can say as part of that, oh, they would have had the space for him anyway. They also got Bobby Portis and uh, Taj Gibson and Wayne Ellington and all these guys who aren't around anymore. So I still think that the Porzingis trade, it just remains to be seen. Porzingis doesn't look too good so far this year either. He got injured again. That was a big reason why I was concerned about it for Dallas as well. I was concerned about it for Dallas because they'd have to give him a max contract. It looked like it was working out for Dallas last year. Now maybe there's a little bit more of a question. I still think, though, that so much of what that was about was 2019 free agency, and once they struck out there, it became a lot harder to justify, and we shall see what ends up happening with Porzingis. I mean, it really, all of it just depends on how it turns out for Dallas, as opposed to, I think for the Knicks, it didn't really turn out that well, and I don't see the Dallas giving up a lottery pick this year, but it could happen still. So let's go to the Orlando Magic. The Magic are 8-12 and 12 on the season, a disappointing 2-8, and eight, though they are so shorthanded since last 1560. 26th in net rating, 27th in offense, still respectable 16th in defense. Steve Clifford teams seem to have a very high defensive floor. 538 projects them to finish 9th in the East, 34 and 27% according to the two models. And we can start with this question from the NBA Legacy Podcast. What would you guys do if you were in charge of Orlando? And I think where I would start with this is that the magic, you know, like, so basically like, where is it going from here? This season is going to be very difficult. They're starting point guard and one of their integral front court pieces. They're all both out for the year. And so the magic, you know, like, yeah, maybe you can scratch a claw, get in the playoff play. in. I think that's entirely possible, especially because Steve Clifford's a very good coach. But for me, where you draw this question is what are they going to be next season? And they can be competitive. You know, they can make, they, I think they can, make the East playoffs, make the elimination, you know, the the best of seven series. I think that's totally plausible, but it would be stunning to me if the Magic won a playoff series in 21-22, even if they were very healthy. They just, I don't think they have the horses there. And so as I define success, that's the type of thing where you start to look in a different direction, have some conversations with Aaron Gordon about how, how willing he is to re-sign either in an extension or in 22, but start moving towards the things that aren't nailed down because while Fultz and Isaac are making significant money and those contracts are already locked in, it's not so prohibitive that if they were able to, you know, kind of shift things around that they're stuck with this team forever. Yeah, I think that's right. I think just anyone who's not a young guy who's part part of this core in a couple of years I think you have to explore their trade value and even if you're getting neutral value or even if you have to give up something mild like a second round pick just to be able to develop some of these young guys and just to choose a direction with this group I understand of course uh, why that hasn't been done that's uh, because they've had plenty of pain already since the Dwight Howard trade uh Tamterius the Greek says what is a good trade destination for Evan Fournier if the magic blow it up as they should, uh, says uh, Tam de Greek. And I, of course, as we just talked about, we've been saying that for a year and a half now. So let's see here. Who could really use Fournier's skill set? Obviously, it's a team that has some playoff aspirations. I would like him in Philly. Sure. I think I think he could be a, a useful piece there, potentially. I would like him in Toronto. I think that, that give them a little bit more half-court juice. Now, part of the problem is uh, Fournier has struggled in the playoffs uh, these last couple of years, but that's also because he's probably being asked to do a little bit too much. I would like 
Evan Fournier in. I don't think Milwaukee would be able to to put together the scratch, but I've said before that I think Fournier and Bogdan Bogdanovich, who they've always been trying to get, are pretty similar players. I'm just not sure exactly how that could work out from a, a salary matching standpoint and with the Bucks' hard cap issues. I've got one for you. Yes. What about Fournier with the Mavericks? Yeah, that one occurred to me. I think he would be a nice little upgrade for them on Tim Hardaway Jr. defensively. They could re-sign him, give him a, another playmaking option uh, when Luka is on the bench, but still a more reliable shooter than Josh Richardson. So yeah, I, I think he would be good there. It, it's a question of what the price would be. I actually think that the Memphis Grizzlies could Ooh, use yeah, Evan I like Fournier. That. And do the Grizz, the Grizz have that Golden State pick going forward? You know, maybe what they could do is give the Magic the worst of their pick or the Warriors pick in 2024. Maybe that would be something that uh, does that seem like too much for Fournier? I think there would have to be an understanding that he was going to resign, and he also is probably going to get overpaid. So that that's part of a problem there. And if you're Memphis, also they got cap space this summer, they could just sign him. So I I'm, I think he would be a nice fit on their current team. I don't know that it makes sense for where Memphis is and where they are trying to go. Now, I mean, Golden State, I think he would be a good fit for how they want to play and that maybe Kelly Oubre for him would be something that could make sense. How does Fournier fit in when Clay Thompson is back? They do kind of overlap a little bit. I guess Thompson is your three at that point. You're kind of low on athleticism, though. I mean, I guess then Andrew Wiggins would be your four. That starts to get a little weird. Maybe Fournier comes off the bench if he stays there. Another team that runs into problems having to overpay. There are a lot of places that he fits. It's just the question of, is he going to stick around there? And does the value that the Magic get for him is it a team that falls into that Marcus Mortz bird rights trap where you're signing Evan Fournier with the intention of signing him to his next contract and having him be around for a while and you're giving up an asset, a first-round pick, to be commensurate with that? Or is it more, yeah, this guy can help us out for the stretch run? Uh, I mean, another one that would make some sense to me, Danny, would be Boston into the trade exception if they decided to go that route just to get another capable wing. They just don't have enough of those guys, capable shooter. Well, and Fournier is more stout defensively, so we talked about the potential fit issues with Redick. I don't think Fournier has those same problems. At least yeah, he's extent. still, you know, is he going to be able to switch on to Kevin Durant? You know, and also, again, how much do you want to give up for a guy who's probably not going to start for you? Probably not going to close for you. I think Smart is more valuable than him. If they, if Boston had an injury, it might make more sense. So there are a lot of teams that could use him, but not like the teams that were like, oh my God, we desperately need this dude, aren't really in playoff contention. And so there's no reason to trade for him. I think Philly is probably the team that could use him the most in the end. Yeah, I'm broadly I'm on board with that. Um, Let, let's move just, on. That was a long time on the Magic, yeah. actually, as it turned out. Hey, it's good to give him some time every once in a while. Yeah. Uh, Sixers, 14 and 6, 7 and 3 since the last 15 and 60. Yeah. yeah. Not, now 15 and 6 with the win today, we should with, we should add. But yes. yes. Well, we're, uh, we're, we're, we're holding it for that will be counted, of course, the next time we do them. Uh, 10th in net rating, plus 3.2, 14th in offense, strong 6th in defense. 538 projects them to win the most games in the Eastern Conference, 46, and they're making the playoffs. Um, yeah, a couple of things I wanted to just talk about briefly with them. Sure. Uh, they had absolutely sucked without Joel Embiid on the floor. 
they were they had a nice win over the Pacers today despite shooting it really poorly with them beat out there's been this recurring lower back soreness for him he, he got knocked onto that in the Lakers game he's missed other games because of that as well but it was good to see Ben Simmons who always seems to kill the pace he had one of the best games of his career at Indiana last year around this time as well but 21 points seven assists for Ben Simmons nine out of 12 and Indiana really struggled because they just don't have anyone who can match up with him very well physically but still I mean to beat a good team without Embiid is not something that they were doing so far they started Tony Bradley in that game and brought Dwight Howard off the bench and Bradley they were negative 16 in his 17 minutes but Howard was plus 23 that that was really interesting it was really kind of a bench win uh for the Sixers group against Indiana yeah and that gets into something I talked about a little bit in the Pacers lineup Pacers discussion about mixed lineups for them versus starting five some of the some of the challenges that Nate Bjorkren has to deal with I want to start with this one from Knit Mash uh, would you rather have Ben in the closing lineup for Philly? Would you rather have Ben Simmons? We know the his skill set or Zach Levine. And it was interesting. I hadn't looked up. This was before their win against the the Pacers. I don't know if it hit the clutch trigger or not. Um, I, I just can't remember where because I know the the, the margin shifted a lot late. Um, but but as of Sunday morning, Sixers have a plus twenty eight point four clutch net rating, mostly because their defense has been suffocating during those minutes. Eighty six point six a defensive rating. Um, and overall in Simmons plus Embiid minutes 120 offensive rating I mean granted playoff opponents are going to be better both in personnel and in execution but I think that and and I'm not saying definitively that the Simmons Embiid thing it's a success or anything like that but I do worry about trading him for somebody like Levine that it is like throwing out the baby with the bathwater in the like I don't think Levine moves the needle enough for them to trade for Simmons yeah no I agree now if they wanted to give up future picks uh, to get Zach Levine uh, that that might be interesting that might be interesting um yeah as of right now we had another question here of who is the best player the Sixers could trade for without giving up Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons and so basically what let's see what they have available here if we're going to talk about that that would be considered an asset they got yeah Batiste Seibel Tyrese Maxey Shake Milton those are really probably the guys on roster that you're talking about as having positive trade value Seth Curry or Tobias Harris moving them doesn't really make sense in, in a deal like that and then you've got They've got all of their picks going forward except for the pick they gave up in the Horford trade. That's a 2025 protected one to six and then one to four the next couple of years. They could trade a 2027 pick as the first allowable draft after that in theory, but it would have to go in that first year. If it didn't, then there would have to be some kind of a conversion. Oh, oh are, the, are, are the Sixers familiar with that kind of a structure of one year and then it converts into a second? <laughs> Ah, uh, good old Mike Muscala. Big, biggest shot he ever hit for the Sixers. Um, So they could trade this year's first. They could trade 2023's first. And they could probably trade 2027. And you have all the swaps in between. And that was basically enough of a package to get Drew Holiday. Do they want to go all in to that type of a level as of now? I don't necessarily think that they would. And I also think it might make more sense to just trade Ben Simmons for a guy who fits better. And then maybe you see you, you would make a transaction like that if it looked like you let's say you get Bradley Beal for Ben Simmons or something you keep those first round picks hopefully in such a deal and then you can use them to get the third piece that really fits around those guys if you don't think that's uh, Tobias Harris but it certainly in any if you're willing to give up the farm there are 
guys out there the other question just becomes if a player is available if they really want to be worth giving up that sort of a package for then how do they compare with some of the other teams out there say golden state with wiseman and their first round picks available and that minnesota pick from next year so there's the question of just do they have stuff in a vacuum that could get them somebody really good yes do they have the best offer maybe not i mean i don't think they could get beal for example without giving up simmons i don't know what you how you would do that it's also uh, hard with matching salary in that sort yeah, of context i mean that would be amazing to be able to trade tobias harris for bradley beal and to just give up all your first round picks in the future i think that's and to have all those guys you know hopefully you could get an extension for beal kind of understood at that time to have that three-man core going forward i mean that would be absolutely amazing i just i don't think that's enough to get it done for beal and then you know we haven't really talked to uh, other than beal who that next star is who's going to be available hasn't really come onto the horizon yet i i would agree with that um so- Steven Simmons asked, how can the Sixers become contenders? I think they I think they are right now. I don't think they're top tier right now, but their defense has been strong. I think that when they've been healthy, when Embiid has been able to play, they've been really good. Now, top t- to get to top tier, I do think they need an upgrade. Yeah, the, the Beal thing would probably be the would be a dream, but it is getting into that top tier will be difficult but remember that top tier might only be two teams right now i don't i think i think that this i think that the sixers have a totally reasonable chance of winning the east right now and very quickly one from big prison uh, mike do, do you, well let me react to that sure i mean i guess i guess we have to do a whole episode on this at some point <laughs> told you um you know who i should call to to have this discussion is uh Bontemps, actually that would be a that would be a great pod because uh, he's he's in the thick of it with, with all these teams and uh he's got opinions too that's, that's what i like about bontem that, that's why uh, he and i oh, get along oh, we really? both got opinions <laughs> um do you want to jump to the raptors yeah I, I there's basically nothing philly can do in this regular season okay. other than changing their personnel that's going to make me make them the favorite i just don't think they can score well enough i think it's too easy to deal with a, a big center like Embiid in the playoffs as well as he's playing i mean he he's got a very legitimate mvp argument right now which i am really looking forward to sitting down in, in about a week or so and really digging into who should be the mvp so far you ready to jump to the raps seven and twelve five and six since the last 15 and 60 but pretty much a neutral net rating so they've uh, outplayed that record quite a bit should be around 500 surprisingly enough danny 13th on offense and 18th on defense that is definitely not how i i, I mean if you told me before the year the rats would be 13th on offense be great they're gonna be just as good as last year but uh, the defense has really fallen off they've missed what they've gotten from the big man positions they've had some absences briefly in the backcourt they just haven't been the type of elite unit particularly off the bench uh that they were last year they project for still tying for the sixth seed which would be 36 wins again that shows you it really no no conference uh, has shown much in terms of the middle uh, where there's a, a lot of strength there 76 percent chance of making the playoffs per raptor interestingly enough elo has them at 82 uh, percent based uh, on how they've played so far they haven't had the easiest schedule in the world uh, let's uh, get to the questions I think the most interesting is this one from Amukanado. What is the ceiling for a Raptors team with Siakam, Van Vliet, and OG Ananobi as their core? And no, and uh, the questioner notes that 2021 free agency is looking more and more underwhelming. And I think this is the fundamental question that Masai Ujiri has to be has to be asking himself, which is you can't like I got asked in my uh, my Discord chat for Total Access subscribers about like basically like kind of potentially tearing it down, and it's like well, though to me those guys are good enough that you're not tearing it down and being bad like you could you know you could be 
probably more of like a fringe playoff team. You have a lot of defensive talent there, probably need some another creator, some of the half-court offense limitations, and need a center, but oh no, you need a center. But the idea of that group, especially if Siakam doesn't have another level, like even if it's even if you get 201920 Siakam, like for a full for a full season, like I don't think that team gets into the top tiers of title contention. You would you would need a player who's better than them to get in. And so then it's, I, I use the phrase defining success a lot, but that's really what this is about for the Raptors. And the funniest thing is that it is extremely difficult for a team in that sort of a situation to vault into title contention. And one of the few exceptions to that is the Raptors when they got Kawhi Leonard. However, that does not make it likely that they're going to do it again. It just proves how unlikely it is. Yeah, it's really going to have to be internal development for this group and the slight regression of Siakam. And I don't think that Van Fleet has much more ceiling to explore. So is it OG Ananobi, the the guy who's really going to be able to pop offensively? We've seen Wings with his physical skill set be able to do that. I don't think that he quite has the feel of uh, someone like Kawhi or, or Butler, even before those guys uh, became offensive centerpieces. But this is a team that has had some big developmental success stories and them pulling a rabbit out of their hat it would not shock me. Uh, Derek asks, uh, if we do this one quickly, if you were Dallas, would you consider a trade center around Lowry for Porzingis? And no, I, I don't think that makes any sense with a 35 year old Lowry. And that would just, Lowry's a free agent at the end of the year. That would just open up more cap space. There already aren't enough free agents, uh, as Danny wrote about it recently in 2021 which saddens me. I was so excited for 2021 free agency. Stupid CBA allowing contract extensions. Um, so I am uh, I don't think that, that they would want to do that. Uh, the Mavericks, I mean, the, what the Mavericks are trying to do is based on getting Kristaps Porzingis playing at a, at a high level again. Well, and, and that ties in with the question from Billy Chow, which is should the Raptors start thinking of trading Lowry, who would the suitors be, what kind of asset? And I think that the market, as, as much as I appreciate Lowry and have for years, he makes a lot of money and he's a pending free agent. So yeah, maybe there's a team that would have Intel or like, you know, Intel that would, that would have an indication that Lowry would resign there and hopefully do it at a reasonable rate. But it's really hard to find that perfect fit for me with Lowry when you consider the logistical challenges of matching salary and everything else. And so like, yeah, there are a ton of teams that Lowry would help. But this is the problem I think Zach Harper wrote about this with Andre Drummond, just guys who make a lot of money are really hard to trade. And so, yeah, would Kyle Lowry help the Sixers? Of course he would. He would help a bunch of different teams. But we just talked about how Philadelphia, it's very difficult for them to get up to that kind of range for, for matching salary. And unless... Toronto is interested in getting in the Tobias Harris Derby or something like that. And it's a similar conversation with a lot of the other teams that would be interested in Lowry. And remember that less competitive teams, they probably wouldn't be too optimistic that he would that he would re-sign with them. And so thus the the value is a lot lower. So the Wizards, three and twelve as of this morning, now four and twelve, had only played five games since the last fifteen and sixty since all of those absences they were one and four they did beat the nets in that absolutely wild game that danny referenced earlier negative 3.9 net rating not as bad as that 4 and 12 record would indicate that's 22nd in the nba 19th on offense and 25th on defense 19th on offense obviously is not going to cut it for for this team they project for 23 wins which would be 14th only four percent chance of the playoffs per raptor same for elo danny would you say i would give him a better chance than four percent of making the playoffs right talk again i couldn't i i was i had my headphones out <laughs> 
I don't know. Am I going to cut this out? Yeah, maybe I will. We'll see. I, I did the talk for two minutes and not realize I was muted thing, which, uh, you know, that happens once a week or so. We're, we're a little rusty. It's been a, a week since we recorded. So what, what I was saying was, would you give them a better than 4% chance of making the playoffs? Ooh, uh, of making of making the best of seven series? No. Yeah, I mean, I guess they would have to worm their way through the play, playing game. But uh, so what are they right now? They are... Well, and this doesn't count their insane win on Sunday over the Nets. Right, right. Yeah, I, I mentioned that. So as of right now, they are only three games back the eighth seed still. That's not terrible. And I think they could play better. Russell Westbrook certainly had an encouraging game. I don't know what it is about the Wizards. Like the only team they can beat, apparently, and the only team Russell Westbrook can play well against is the Nets. I guess maybe just because it's just turns into a shootout with those two teams, or it's just luck. Who knows? But so we'll see. I, mean, I do think they have the ability to play better than this. What are the questions for them? Um, so I, I think this one from Craig Lavoie is an interesting one. What are the chances that Russell Westbrook ever becomes a net positive player again? And for like a, a short period of time, like let's say like a month or a couple months, I, I think that the odds of it are, are pretty high. He's been dealing with, you know, various physical issues of whether we're talking about COVID and everything else over time. And I think that there is still a good player in there. However, if we're talking about for a full season, I think that you run into a couple of real problems. One is that while I don't think Russell Westbrook will be as inefficient offensively as he has been so far Sunday notwithstanding the the pathway to being like a really positive player is it gets it gets more faint as he gets to the basket less and everything else and so I absolutely think there's there's a chance but it is getting more faint pretty quickly yeah there's still reason to believe that this was health related I think also just using him in smarter lineups it will be helpful running more could be helpful just uh, being in better overall shape can be helpful but certainly Bontemps talked about this the other day on his pod that or the pod with Windhorse I should say that he's been one of the most damaging players in the NBA that clearly has been the case he hurts them defensively that that wall trade is looking pretty disastrous so far and supposedly the Wizards had access to how he was playing in pickup and maybe they're just they thought things had run its course or they're trying to placate Beal or they felt oh he's just going to get hurt again Russ is more reliable health-wise none of those things have particularly worked out that well so so, uh, I guess that takes us to Bradley Beal. We've gotten well. Actually, I want to I want to talk. Yeah, go ahead. I want to talk briefly. The question from Francis Mack. Um, basically, he asked kind of how he can be effective as a player for the for the Wizards, and he brought up you know like Blake Griffin's Blake Griffin's evolution or Portland Mellow. And I think what's so difficult for Westbrook, not only because he relies so much on athleticism, but because he has been a consistently bad shooter. Remember Westbrook this year? He's at forty six percent true shooting despite shooting thirty three percent from three, which is well better than his career average because he's not making any twos and so the fear that a lot of us had for russ a long time ago was basically that when the wheels come off the wagon they will come off all the way and so like mellow there was a way to evolve his game into like a, a different type of thing and with westbrook almost all of those shifts make him a less efficient like make him a less effective player i thought the blake griffin comparison that francis came up with is interesting here because and i think even d rose as well d rose had all these injuries and he was humbled by that right and blake griffin had a bunch of injuries as well and perhaps those were things that made these players realize there was this point of demarcation i have to change my game i i would characterize russell westbrook as perhaps the most stubborn player in the nba and, and many have said well you know that's just who he is you take the good with the bad with him he can't be russ unless he's gonna be this kind of out of control sort of style but so much of it just seems to be for me 
that you can't change until you first acknowledge a pro- that there's a problem. And I just don't know that Russell Westbrook, from a mentality standpoint, is capable of that. And then that, that's even getting more into the fact that he's now 32, is shooting is only getting worse. Like, that's the one thing that should get better for you as you get older. You have more of a chance to practice. And I think part of his problem, too, actually, is that he shoots this shot where he's at the top of his jump pretty much from everywhere. And so he doesn't have his legs under him as much. I think that's maybe part of why his shooting has really regressed. But well, and yeah. here, here's the here's the big jaw dropper for me. And, and again, I think this will change with time, at least a little bit. Only 14 percent of Russell Westbrook's shot attempts so far are coming within three feet. That was 42 percent last year and 36 percent his final year in OKC. And so when Russell Westbrook shifts those shots, it drops off more precipitously than almost anybody else in the NBA. And so it's almost impossible for him to be an efficient player at that rate, especially when it's not like he's trading those for foul shots because his free throw attempt rate is the lowest it has been in his career. Let's finish up with this one because obviously there will be much more discussion of this, but who are the teams that could realistically trade for Beal? And so what are the criteria you're looking for? Obviously teams that have assets over and above these big first round, future first round pick packages that have been going out. And then also a place where Beal realistically would want to stay and extend or sign a a new contract as a free agent Uh, he could be a free agent in the summer of 2022 so who's on that list i think philly is on that list with uh ben simmons and we went through some of their assets uh, in their section the golden state warriors are on that list who else we got here I don't know that they would want him necessarily like, that that they would throw in everything for him but Boston I think could put together an offer I mean I wouldn't want to give up either Tatum or Braun for him given Agreed. their age and so I don't think they have the package any who who else is there at that point I mean Kemba's there for matching salary but that creates a whole bunch of problems for the Wiz and they don't really have a lot of other guys they also yeah cuz the gargantuan trade exception is well, well, so see, here's one is, for it, sure that's in there. That's Miami. It's insufficiently large. That's hilarious. I forgot. It's a little bit too small. Yeah. Um, Miami is certainly on this. That's, <laughs> the, I think those are probably the big three. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else. You know, a team like New Orleans would have the asset, but it, people generally don't want to get traded to New Orleans and stay there. That just hasn't been the history. I'm not saying it's impossible, but we haven't seen that yet. And I guess if Denver wanted to include Jamal Murray or MPJ, I think they could get in the conversation. Yeah, but maybe, I don't know maybe, that's, maybe that's the other one. So yeah, I think those are probably the four that come to mind for me. Denver, Miami, Golden State, Philly. And even even Denver, that's still fraught with peril there too as to, as to whether Beal would want to re-sign there. If you had to pick, well, that's a, that's a good Watfo. Let's say that let's say that tomorrow, actually. That, that'll be fun to go back and look at that of where we think Bradley Beal, what team Bradley Beal will be playing for in the 21-22 season. That'll be, that'll be a fun one, actually. I'm going to write that down right now. And I'm going to sign off right now. This is fun getting back in the mix here. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, welcome to February. And we'll be back now on our normal schedule for Dunked on Prime subscribers. So please go ahead and sign up for that. And Danny, as mentioned, wrote that piece about 2021 free agency. So please check that out at The Athletic as well. And Hollinger and Duncan will have a new episode this week. What we're going to do, a fun concept, we're going to discuss which teams we would most want to be a fan of over the next five years. So that's going to be fun. John and I are going to get into the weeds on that one. And Danny, I will be back tomorrow. Also, NBA cast as well is back. 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific, Lakers at Hawks. Did I miss anything? No? Good. Okay, we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh... 
<laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 